Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Gabriella Gricious is a PhD political science student and a graduate teaching assistant at Colorado State University. She is also a graduate teaching fellow at the North American and Arctic Defense and Security Network. Gabriella received her master's degree in international security from the University of Groningen. Her interests are focused on the Arctic region, particularly as it concerns Russian policy and the risk of securitizing the region. Gabriella is also a freelance journalist and has published on behalf of Foreign Policy, Responsible Statecraft and Global Security Review, among others. Hello and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. My name is Romain Schiffer. And I'm Loba Timonina. Our guest today is Gabriella Grishes, who's come on the podcast to chat about her recent article she's published with the Arctic Institute on the geopolitical implications of new Arctic sea routes, as well as critical perspectives on Arctic security. Gabriella, thanks for accepting the invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. To start off our conversation, could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, your research, and how you became interested in the Arctic? Sure. So I'm currently a PhD student at Colorado State University in political science. Um, And my background is mostly on international relations, international security, and all things Russia. Um, And I'm mostly interested in studying how security is becoming constructed in the Arctic. So how are states like the US, Canada, and Russia talking about this? And what does colonialism have to do with that? Um, And I came to be interested in the Arctic in a bit of a strange way. So as I said, I've always been sort of interested in Russia, all things security. Um, And as I was applying for PhD programs, I thought, you know, The one thing I have left out of all of my research for so long has been the environment, just because I wasn't very comfortable bringing that into discussions on security. So the program that I applied to, and consequently I'm going to now, is uh, requires that you focus on the environment in some way, shape, or form with your dissertation. And so I started thinking about in what ways do Russia, security, and the environment come into play? And of course, the first thing that comes up is the Arctic. So I started there. And then I sort of took a step back and became interested in questions of coloniality, security construction, and the ways in which states might have pathologies that influence the way that they act in the Arctic. Taking a step back from colonialism and uh, more into mainstream geopolitics, you recently published an article on the Arctic Institute website where you discuss the geopolitical implications of new Arctic sea routes. Could you briefly describe what your argument was? So, as the title of the article suggests, I was looking at what some of the implications were from a geopolitical standpoint of new shipping lanes and the construction of new Arctic ports. And I focused primarily on the Northwest Passage and the Northern Sea Route, as well as Russia's new construction of hydrocarbon and military ports in the Arctic. And I started by talking about some of the economic implications from a geopolitical standpoint. So 
of course, shorter maritime trade routes, the potential renewal of interest in resource extraction, and increased rates of shipping, fishing, and tourism. And of course, beside that, there's also some negative implications. So a lot of states, such as Russia and Canada, haven't really ever had to think about their borders to the north before. So how are they going to do that now that a lot of the ice is melting? What about potential issues of piracy, transnational crime, and illegal fishing? And of course, the biggest issue is unresolved issues of sovereignty in the Northwest Passage and Northern Sea Route, as both of these sea routes are have issues of unresolved sovereignty where both Canada and Russia, um, I'm not sure, respectively, but <laughs> both uh, Canada and Russia claim to have sovereignty over these routes, whereas a lot of the international community says that these are international shipping routes. But my main argument is that it's tempting to see a lot of these unresolved issues and geopolitical problems as inherently tension creating. But my argument is that it doesn't mean tensions per se, but the development of these things will really change how states respond in the Arctic and how they interact with each other. So just that it's important to take into account the development of these new shipping lanes and ports and how we're thinking about the Arctic and how we look at how different states approach it. So... Now let's try to link this to more critical approaches to geopolitics and international relations. What does the critical perspective bring to your own research about the Arctic? How do you view the Arctic from a critical perspective? And how do you apply this to your own research? Perhaps my question is a bit more, what does such a frame of research bring to the mainstream conversation and academic research on geopolitics and security issues? It's a good question. <laughs> I think the first thing that comes to mind from a decolonial approach, um, so taking this colonial logics into account, is thinking about things from a border perspective. And that means thinking about things with subaltern knowledge um, and thinking about practices that have been shunned, suppressed, and made invisible. Uh, so what do indigenous people think about these shipping routes? How does that affect their food? How does that affect their food security, their water security, um, and their traditional ways of life? So I think understanding that we do have these hard security ways of seeing the Arctic in the world, but we also need to imagine how do things appear from a different standpoint, that of the border, and understanding that these two things can exist in the same place at the same time. So there's multiple cosmovisions is how decolonial theory would explain this. Um, and understanding that these exist together, but that they just need to be approached in different ways. I would also add here perhaps that one of the crucial questions in that regard is actually asking what do indigenous communities and local, local communities understand when they talk about security? What is security for them? Because the concept of security also comes from a very particular historical context, right? Yeah, exactly. So one has to be very cautious with that. <laughs> and I actually wanted to um, ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the security and the decolonial perspective. How do you bring this into your research on the Arctic? So I see decolonial theory as having two distinct but not separate parts. So the first is the recognition that coloniality, so the ways in which colonial legacies impact cultural and social systems, did not end with the formal end of colonialism, and that the modern world that we live in today classifies people based on race and ethnicity. Um, 
So beginning with that understanding and the beginning of deconstructing colonial structures. But the second part of that, and no less important, is offering alternatives. So figuring out ways that we can decenter assumptions that we hold about our own ways of thinking and the structures that we've created through that. And one of the ways I already elaborated on, so border thinking, thinking from the subaltern, as well as thinking through pluriversality. So understanding that there are multiple ways that we approach the world and that uh, there doesn't necessarily need to be one cosmopolitan way. And how I connect that to my research is I start with the first section. So recognizing that the way that states and individuals construct security in the Arctic does in a very large way rely on colonial assumptions. And that states, at least in my view, draw from these off-the-shelf uh, colonial approaches in the way that they interact with space in the Arctic, but also people. And then moving to that emancipatory section of decolonial theory, I, as you say, try to say, how is security constructed not only from a Western perspective, but how do indigenous communities understand security? It's probably very different. So, for example, if you look at main Western security documents, they talk a lot about China, Russia, all of these interstate threats. But if you look at Inuit Declaration of Sovereignty, for example, they're focused on questions of climate change. They're focused about food, threats to their traditional ways of life. So understanding that both of these issues of security are very important and that they may sometimes come into conflict with one another is a way that I involve decolonial theory in my research. And so how do you think we can bridge a gap between those two aspects of security? So on the one hand, we have human security that focuses more on the local level and on the other, we have something that's more akin to what we think of when we think of traditional security. So the broader focus on the state with a capital S. It's a very hard question. And I think people have really been struggling with that across the Arctic states. Um, so I think on one hand, issues of human security do need to be much more elevated uh, in the way that ideas of interstate security very much are, and that those need to be lessened. So they need to come more into the center. Um, and I think part of that comes from recognizing climate change as a macro driver of other threats in the Arctic. And that affects, you know, any number of societal food, water and health security issues. So taking that as a main driver of security threats can help bring into the picture some of these more soft securities while also acknowledging that changes in geographies from, from climate change also change the way that states interact with other states. So trying to bring that more into a holistic picture. And we often talk about systemic changes, but do you think the changes that should be made at the State Department level as well to try and focus a bit more on those people-to-people -people security interactions? Absolutely. <laughs> There's no question in my mind that if you just look at some of the security documents that all of the different um, military establishments in the U.S., for example, have put out over the last two years, it's, it is sho not shocking, but it's very notable how the majority of them are all focused on state threats. So I think changing the way that we talk about security and changing the way that we talk about the Arctic writ large is so important because when people read these documents, whether that's in security epistemic communities or just individuals, they have they now form a picture of the Arctic in their mind that focuses on states under conflict rather than individuals that are suffering individual securities in the region.
And do you think this can be done across the Arctic? So I think this perspective might be very uh, state-focused and focused on changes at the national level. But for example, when we see the mainstream narratives about Russia and about the US, and if you read those the documents you mentioned, it's hard to see that the change is going to happen in all those countries. What would it take to, to bring specific change in specific Arctic countries? I think it's a combination of top-down and bottom-up. So as you said, starting from the top is maybe not the only way that we should be doing things because it's very hard to affect change in such a system that's focused on state-based threats. So I think coming at things from a regional level is very important uh, because often regional and local governments have a closer ear to the ground in terms of what issues are actually affecting the people that live within their communities. Um, Beyond that, also just giving more representation to indigenous people and locals that live in the Arctic is hugely important um, because even though there may be some examples where indigenous people have um, the right to speak, so for example, in the Arctic Council, they maybe don't have the right to speak in a lot of smaller communities where there could actually be real focus and change on issues that matter to them. So I think a combination of coming up from the ground as well as advocacy at a state level um, is something that could be used as kind of a combined approach to this. I wonder how it actually plays out in a very specific context like Russia. And as you um, said in the very beginning that you have worked in Russia quite a while, do you actually see that a possibility in the Russian context? And uh, also in your article, you mentioned Northern Sea Route and the changes along the Sea Route and the new bases, new towns popping up uh, due to this shift in uh, seeing the Arctic as a huge possibility. Do you see any um, potential in bridging these two perspectives there, for example? So I don't want to be a pessimist. <laughs> But I do think the Russian case is one where it is much harder to see where this could turn out um, in a more represent representative uh, fashion just because of the way that indigenous people are treated in the Russian context. So um, in general, indigeneity in Russia is seen as very connected to traditional and cultural practices. So for example, if... I, as an indigenous person, decided I wanted to move to Moscow, there's every chance that that title of indigenous person would be taken away from me because I wasn't engaging in traditional or subsistence practices. Um, and I think that way of thinking about indigenous people is hugely problematic uh, for any number of reasons, but specifically in the case of addressing some of these individual insecurities. Um, because without recognition, I can imagine that it would be very difficult to address individual issues of food security, water security, health, um, as well as just the Russian government's focus on projecting power, because that focus on projecting power really silences other issues of individual problems that people may have. So I don't really see too many issues or too many possibilities just because of the political system in Russia itself makes it hard to imagine um, that these issues could be brought to the forefront. I think this is interesting because we can also tie this back to a broader conversation about indigeneity and indigenous rights, especially as a framework to advance some form of reparation for colonialism. And my question is more, 
do you think this framework is problematic because it creates categories and also because it becomes a tool by the state to determine who gets to be indigenous or not? Yes, <laughs> I think um, the development of hierarchies is inherently problematic um, because whether or not they say, oh, well, indigenous people and Russian people have the same level of person or we're categorizing each person as person, you're inherently going to put one person on top of the other. There's going to be some kind of value determination in how we say who is indigenous and who is Russian. Um, and I think it's very clear in Russia that um, if you choose to remain as indigenous to the Russian government, you are saying, oh, well, I want to continue to live and persist in these ways of living that are traditional. Um, and that might stand in the way of military progress, for example, in some of these northern communities. This is so true, uh, especially in the Russian case, that you actually, you do lose your, so to say, privilege of, of being indigenous, if that can be a privilege per se in, in the Russian context. But um, there are many, many issues that... Um, that are connected to that. And you really have to stay and live the traditional life, uh, the traditional way to somehow justify that you're a true indigenous and that you can take care, that you have the right to take care of the territory that you're assigned to. But it seems to me that it's really problematic in the short term that uh, something would actually change towards decolonialization or towards some decolonial perspectives in that regard. You mentioned in your article that the change is, is slow. <laughs> But then how can we actually balance it with the very drastic and, and dramatic uh, climate change, which is not waiting for, for anyone to agree on how we're going to decolonize or uh, what laws we're going to implement? It's happening its own way. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. I think... The fact that climate change is happening so quickly might be, I don't want to say a good thing, <laughs> but um, it might be a way through which a decolonialization can happen um, because generally, you know, it's happening so slowly. People say, oh, we need more time. We need more time to deal with these issues, which, you know, is another symptom of just not wanting to change. But I think that You, not using climate change in a sense can be a tool um, to say, you know, look at this happening. We need to address some of these issues that have not been um, ever really considered or seri seriously considered in the past. So I think using that pressure, using that securitization of climate change could be a way in which a decolonial agenda could begin. How do you see that in... In the context when climate change is not really seen as the, <laughs> as the main threat or like not fully acknowledged. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's about framing. <laughs> so it's a lot about how we how we talk about climate change. And this is, you know, different now, now that we in the US case, now that we have the Biden administration rather than the Trump administration. But it's all about framing climate change in a way that can be understood. So I think in many cases, when people talk about um, the Arctic, they think, ah, oh, the sea ice is receding, things are becoming more accessible. And that's all true. But I think, and this may be controversial to say, um, we need to frame climate change and how it has threats against hard security issues, such as the way that states interact with each other. Um, because then it kind of allows states like Russia, for example, who may 
not wish to talk about climate change in that way to say, oh, okay, we need to think about this, but in a different way altogether. And then bringing climate change, again, is this macro driver to a variety of other issues if you just start with one. So for example, let's say we choose economic security as a very hard uh, security issue to bring climate change into the discussion for. You can say, yes, climate change affects the way in which we get gas or are able to get oil from certain places, then it can connect to other issues such as, oh, well, how are we going to feed the people who are you know, getting this gas? How are we going to supply them? How are we going to deal with more human security issues in service of a hard security um, objective? So starting with that, and then you know, once you have that acknowledgement that climate change is doing all of these things, changing the framing again to talk about individual insecurities and you know, maybe that won't work, but it's one potential way that I can see that we could bring climate change sort of into the discussion more fully, hopefully in service of a more, um, a broader objective of security. Thanks. I wonder now with a decolonial perspective then, the thing is that when you now talked about the hard security and the states, if I understand correctly, the decolonial option, as it's called, do not acknowledge the states in the same way. So like the decolonial option is also um, a way to get rid of this uh, thinking about the states as the primary inquiry, you know, uh, research inquiry and point of concern. So how did they actually get together? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the issue also stems from so decolonial theory, it's all about coloniality, right? So what are the ways in which colonial legacies continue to have effects in the world today? And of course, the biggest one, as you said, is just the state as an institution, um, because it has such an impact on what knowledge is considered uh, important, how knowledge is produced. Um, so I think it presents a bit of a tension, um, because decolonial approaches say, oh, you know, we want to understand, we want to have an emancipatory way of thinking. Um, but at the same time, security maybe is not so emancipatory. So bridging that, I think, is something that I would also like to do. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out a way of doing in my own research. <laughs> and just to follow up on this, how do you think these reframings would look like on the ground? How would they materialize, so to say? Yeah, and I think also it, it's such a hard question to think about how security issues arise. How can we bring into questions of individual um, security, more human security approaches? Um, but I think a useful way of like addressing this is figuring out processes of security rather than just saying things are security threats. So how 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 do things become normalized when something becomes a security issue? So like in Russia, for example how what what are the different kinds of techniques of governance that become highlighted when Russia decides to securitize um, the Arctic and what kind of identities are created? And I think understanding kind of the context and nuances behind how security is situated in particular political systems can help to uncover clues maybe of how how can we walk this back? How can we change the approach? So understanding, more fully how security issues emerge and become sticky, so to speak, and evolve can help uh, bridge the knowledge gap, so to speak. I think what 
is what lacks quite often in the research on security is the focus on the materialities of this security and the materialities of the and the acts of securitization. And I think that that perhaps looking into the materialities of the security uh, issues could be one way of addressing this um, this dilemma. Yeah, I I would also agree. I think um, so often. I mean, we all know like traditional uh, ways of thinking about securitization. It's all about discourse, and things only exist in the way that we speak about them. But I think that's so. It's such a it's it's such a strange way of thinking about the world because it would be as though, you know, for example, a president or a prime minister says this is a security issue, and if the audience accepts it, that's it, and that just leaves out so much, as you were saying, materialities of security, the power relations that are underneath it. Um, and just, there are so many, you know, ways of the context that really matter um, when we're talking about how security is constructed and how it happens. And I think leaving that out and for imagining, for example, you know, the president of Russia versus the president of the United States, they, they could say the same thing but it would result in such different uh, realities on the ground. And that is so key when thinking about security. And here perhaps is when the indigenous perspectives that you, Gabriella, talked um, a little bit about in the very beginning become crucial and very, very important. Yeah, some of the different perspectives that I have read have such a different way of thinking about security, particularly in Russia. Um, because the way that, you know, as you said, the Russian government thinks about threats to any kind of Arctic security as threats to Russia takes it almost very personally, in a sense. And I think that almost balancing that with how maybe Russian indigenous people imagine security or they imagine, let's say, safety has such a different way of thinking to it. And maybe if there was a way to bring that more to the fore when we talk about security, that would be a way to de-escalate a lot of the way that we talk about, you know, particularly from an American perspective, it's such a, uh, the resurgence of the Cold War, traditional narratives, Russia, US, China, blah, blah. Um, and I think realizing that the Russian state is not the Russian people, and it's certainly not Russian indigenous people, can help to bring that pressure down and act can almost as a valve to reduce some of that um, aggressiveness is something that should be used. Thanks. As you said earlier, you have studied in, uh, in different places. So you've um, been exposed to different contexts and different ways of understanding security. And I wonder what's the difference and what are the similarities, for example, when talking about security in the Netherlands, where you studied before, and, um, and in the US. Were there things that made you a little bit confused or like that fascinated you? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> so when I was uh, studying security in the Netherlands, it was so interesting because we didn't really talk about realism approaches to security. We more talked about ontological security. We talked about the role of security in development. Also the extent that security is sometimes an empty signifier. So most of the way that we approach a security as a, you know, at large was about these critical approaches to security. And we didn't really address a lot of the things that are so prevalent in the U.S. when we talk about deterrence theory, great power politics, um, nuclear security. So I think 
I find it very interesting that when I was studying international relations as a bachelor student in the United States, I did take some security classes, but they were again just so war focused, you know. So there was talk. I took a class on guerrilla warfare, where all we did was talk about guerrilla warfare tactics and examples of how it worked in urban context and forest contexts. Um, whereas all the courses that I took in the Netherlands were very much about security, the role that. Um, what kind of civil wars are we having today? How is that in context? So it was just a more critical approach that really questioned how are we seeing security today and how is that really uh, changing the way that we think about the world? Whereas I feel in the US, there's this cosmopolitan approach that everyone sees security in this one particular way. And it's all about war. It's about dominance, competition, all of these issues when in fact, from at least my perspective, from a Dutch perspective, this critical more what makes up security? How are these wars imagined? Is much more of a deep thinking question and more useful, I would argue, when talking about this. Why do you think it's a case that it's so different? I think a lot of it has to do with that imperial nature that the US continues to have today or tries to have. I think also it just has to do with the development of political science as a field which of course comes from very racist origins um, in the 1900s. So I think how it developed in the US, it developed as a result of exogenous circumstances. So it developed in result of the Cold War and World War II. And the way that security was understood was in reference um, to, to what the US considered as real material threats. So very much, how do we deal with another state? How do we address issues of Vietnam, Korea? Whereas in a European context, it was, I think, in reaction to this assertion of American hegemony. Um, so I think the way that it developed is a result of how different parts of the world interpreted security. So obviously, American was very imperial, whereas Europe was kind of coming down, in a sense, from its history. Have you seen that it translates into the Arctic as well, or into the discourse of Arctic security? Definitely. When I think of... <laughs> all of these, you know, policies from the US, they treat the Arctic as this kind of blank slate where no one has been there before. We are going there. We will, you know, engage with Russia and China, the other two state actors where, as of course, I think European approaches do acknowledge that there is some elements of great power competition happening in the Arctic, but that it is, you know, not that no one has been living there for however many years in the past and that there's other issues that arise from environmental security, from pollution, um, and I think just taking a broader approach to how security is understood and constructed in the Arctic, I see is coming from a very European standpoint, whereas from a American standpoint, it is so much focused on what they see as threats to their hegemony. And it seems that talking about the colonial legacies and the colonial practices that are still there can be the way to actually challenge that. Yeah. I think it it does really help because because it re refocuses the frame so to speak on not just you know how how states can be sources of insecurity to one another but also how states can be sources of insecurity to people and challenging um you know finding these political assumptions behind security thinking so what do these secure what are these security narratives not saying but what do they imply um so one example that I think of all the time is just this exclusion of indigenous voices um, and the way that policy is constructed. So even in the Canadian context where there 
Arctic policy is supposedly so co-developed, it's so co-thought, all of these, you know, things that sound very good. But if you actually look at how the document was constructed, a lot of the input that they got from indigenous communities was put in appendices rather than the main policy, really showing that the Canadian state said, ah, you know, great that we got all of this input, but we have our own agenda and including indigenous voices is not a part of that. And how do you think we'd move from this, from this situation to somewhere where indigenous voices are more, not only included, but also part and parcels of, of security policies? I think it starts by asking indigenous people what they want as representation, because the instinct is to say, we'll bring more indigenous people into government, have them contribute on policies and documents, and that's all well and good. But I think asking indigenous people and communities and saying, what is important to you in this region and how do you want to represent this? Do you want to be a part of government, like, or let's say imperial Canadian government? Do you want more self-governing rights within your territory? What is important to you and how can we involve that on a national level? And that may be also giving them more say in the Arctic Council as well. So I think just centering the concerns of people from the subaltern so these indigenous people is so important um, rather than centering the concerns of people from southern capitals like you know washington dc which is very far from the arctic is a first step and i think more importantly the center of how we should be thinking about concerns looking forward thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation gabriella you are co-host a podcast called Disrupt. Can you tell us a little more about it before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. So the goal of Disrupt is to bring into the focus more critical voices in international relations. So a colleague, Bridget Neff Hickman, and I both have taken international relations courses for quite some time. And what is very notable is that in the U.S., at least, they always start with, let's talk about realism. Let's talk about liberalism. And we only spend the last third of the class talking about more critical perspectives. And, you know, that approach, while it might be traditional, it should change because these different ways of seeing the world are much more relevant to the issues that we're facing right now and problems that can really be addressed by looking at these voices. So we go through issues in international relations. So we had a series on climate change. We're currently talking about nuclear issues where we introduce different theories such as feminist theory, queer theory, decolonial theory, um, a couple of other theories as well, and say, what do these theories bring to the forefront when we talk about these issues that have been otherwise silenced by traditional international relations perspectives? And then we try to bring on people that can talk about in practice, um, what do these theories actually bring to the forefront? How would they change the way that we use policies? Um, and so that's our goal is to hopefully help international relations scholars and students to really question the way that traditional IR is taught and the way that it's seen in the world and hopefully adopt a more critical perspective. Thanks a lot. It is a truly fascinating initiative and I'm very happy that you're doing this work <laughs> and um, that we're helping each other to challenge the way people think about the Arctic. Thank you so, so much, Gabriela, for such an amazing conversation. If people want to follow you in your research, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? So I'm unfortunately very active on Twitter. <laughs> 
or for better or for worse. So I'm on Twitter at Modern Fledgling. Otherwise, you can just check my website at www.gabriellagricious.com.